I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Before I start, I would like to do a land acknowledgement that this podcast episode is being recorded on the stolen Creek and Muscogee lands. All right, I am so excited to have Dr. Raj Sundar with us today, with me today. He is a family physician and community organizer who's currently working as a full-spectrum family medicine physician at Kaiser Permanente, Washington. In addition to his clinical duties, Dr. Sundar serves as the Associate Medical Director of the Burien Medical Center, where he oversees the care of over 17,000 patients and is the leader of the Health Equity Action Team, a group of over 500 members who are committed to promoting healthcare equity through forums and community organizing. In his spare time, Dr. Sundar hosts the Healthcare for Humans podcast. Welcome, Dr. Sundar. So great to have you here. Uh, thanks for having me, Dr. Wiener. Um, is it all right if I call you Raj for this? Uh, of course. Yeah, I was trying <laughs> to. Not, yeah, I, I, I like you to a little formal, yeah. but like not too formal. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for for coming. I'm so excited to hear about the work uh, you are doing out in Seattle. We were talking off air that we are both uh, have our medical, both did our medical training in Seattle. I have since left the area, but you uh, like a long time ago, I left uh, in 2006, but you're still there. So um, that is great to hear. Um, so tell me, tell me more about who you are and and what got you into this work. Yeah, you know, I have a hard time with bios just because <laughs> I feel like our identities are so complex and we often focus on this achievement and numbers yeah. and stuff. But at the, at the core of it, you know, I wanted to be a better doctor <laughs> and I'm always trying to find ways to do that. And I think, you know, you're trying to help that for your, you're trying to do that for your audience too with the courses you run. Uh, but I, I'm from India in a small village called Tamarankote. There's like a few thousand people there and I grew up there I was there for eight years or so with I lived with my grandparents and then I came to beat my parents here in America where they were originally in North Carolina I just bring up that story because in India my parents were so close to a village where life was hard they grew up in a life of poverty and they always instilled in me this idea of ambition and achievement as the way to protect myself from returning to a life of poverty because they worked so hard to get out of there. And my grandfather, who's this like short five foot, two inch guy, like willed his entire family to become a family of doctors. I don't know how, <laughs> but he gave nobody a choice. He said, everybody's gonna be a doctor and that's how we're gonna do it. And he made everybody study from like 5 a.m. onwards. So mm -hmm. that's how that's how my parents became doctors. And they, you know, they carried this forward to, especially when I was growing up, they said, well, what kind of doctor do you want to be? They never said, what do you want to be grow up? So I was like, oh, I guess I have so many choices of being a doctor. That's so funny. So, wow. What was that like? Uh, Just like pause for a second. Like, yeah, I mean, or maybe we could talk about it later, but like, do you feel, do you, do you wish you had had the, the opportunity to do something else? Do you feel, cause I know a lot of people kind of come into medicine and sometimes they feel a little bit trapped. I feel like you've created a niche for yourself, 
but yeah, what was that like kind of only having one option? I know it's so hard to know the counterfactual of like, what could I have been if nobody laid those parameters with me? But through my journey of acceptance, you know, and self-compassion that I've accepted, that was my story. So then I've tried to find places within that yeah. being a doctor of where I feel like I can be my true self and make an impact in the way I want to in the world. Uh, and obviously that's like so simplified because that's me right now. And <laughs> the last whatever years, I'm like, man, maybe I should have done something else because we know all the problems with healthcare systems and the boxes that we're put in and the especially being a productivity-based <laughs> clinician trying to heal people, you know, you've been there and what that feels like. Uh, but I, I think I, I've, I've been more accepting of what my story is. Yeah. And then I've grown from that into something that I can contribute to this world. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Um, all right. So continue. So, so that, that, that was the story. So you're becoming a doctor. Doctoring became a family trade. But once we came to America, I mean, I, I was not that connected to this life of poverty. I wasn't threatened by losing it all. And essentially, I was a kid with a lot of privilege, right? I went to a private school. I was a South Asian Indian. People expect, expected me to be smart. You know, there's that model minority thing, but I did well in school. So things were working out. My my parents rewarded me for that. Like the most exciting parts of my uh, growing up was like getting a PlayStation because I got an A+. Oh, wow, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that like immediate rewards and recognition that you get as a child. But I, I'm building this up as my story because when we're part of privilege, you know, we talk about that. It can be privilege in all kinds of levels. I had a specific privilege of just being, of having class privilege, of having money and stability, and my parents being doctors in the U.S. And I think what I felt that was very palpable was emptiness and hollowness of just chasing recognition and achievement. Mm. especially once I got into medical school and then finishing rotations, trying to chase the same feeling of getting good grades and impressing your attendings or your preceptor. Right. right? And there's so much more to medicine that we all know that, but it's, it's so easy to get caught up in this because we're so competitive and medicine makes us competitive because we have to work so hard to get this thing. And I had to, become I had to distance myself from my own story and my parents story a bit to really like understand what I wanted to do in this world and part of that came from having children like that feeling of holding your baby and looking them in their eyes and like feeling that love for this other human being right that feeling that's so hard to capture that you know so many people have felt before but feeling that in small ways with my patients when sometimes healthcare systems and tools were not effective right like yes like there's this awesome case where somebody comes in with cellulite we give them antibiotics and they feel better like thank god like it's 2023 and we have all these antibiotics that are effective but it's when they came to me and their best friend had passed away and their pet has died and they are in chronic pain and i was told to wean them off their opioids that they've been on for 20 years Right. And right. Like that, that is not like a found, like it's not um conducive to healing per se. So in those moments, I've had to learn to like, what does it mean to care for this person in front of me? So I had moments like that and it, and it 
realize, I, and I realized that I could be so much more than I, what I was, which was chasing just competition, achievement, and having this ambition of going somewhere else. And I think, yeah, and I really linked to your courses because I really liked what you've done with your courses. That I think you're bringing in some uh, mindfulness and presentness to our experience. Yeah. Um, and in that way, I think I, I had certain like experience going to Nicaragua and really being separated from my Indian identity that helped me realize that I want my work to be an act of love and generosity. So that's that's part two. And part three is I was trying to do this so hard with patients like from all different communities, like immigrant communities, uh, black and brown folks that aren't like me. You know, I'm a South Asian, South Indian. Uh, and I had a hard time doing that, like because of so many reasons. And as I was trying to figure out how to do this better, I kept coming into this idea of cultural competence. If we had like maybe a course in medical school, maybe buying, you know, I, I didn't go to medical school that long ago. So it was a more, little more robust, but it was still like a few hours. And it was a basic acknowledgement that people's cultures are different than yours. And maybe you should understand them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's it. Period. <laughs> Period. Okay. Now let's, let's back to the algorithm of heart failure, right. which is what's right. really important. So, and I, I tried to revisit that and I still feel like I hit a wall of that cultural competency had so many limitations and it evolved so much in the last few decades on what understanding somebody's culture really means. And we can talk about that a bit, but what that led me to was a journey of just figuring it out for myself. Like, what does it mean to care for people that are different than me to create a healing relationship? And navigating that made me want to start a podcast because I wanted to share what I learned. And I felt like my colleagues and my friends were hitting the same walls that I was hitting. Uh, and that that was my journey to where I am right now. Obviously, there's all these other roles that you mentioned, but that is what I'm really focused on at this moment. That's awesome. I love that. It's. I think it's, I mean, it's, I think, really tough to admit when we're not good at something, you know, like where we have, we're, especially when we're in the mindset of, doc I'm actually from a family of doctors too. Like it, I, I wasn't forced to go into it, but like similar to yours, like through them, I'm third generation. Um, and I think we're so used to having to be the top at everything because that's how you get through then to look at and say, like, I don't know, like you just said, what does it mean to care for this person in front of me? Like what, what, not what I think should be the care, but what is actually the care and to say, I'm not, I'm not doing great at this. I need, I need some to, to work on this. Um, how, how have you done, like, how have you done the work? What does that look like? And and I guess also, especially, I think when someone has an identity that is not the like white normative American identity um, and having to cope with, I'm sure your own experiences, which, um, so as, as someone who is dealing with your own experiences of not being the norm, um, to then also say, but I also don't know everybody's lived experience. Like I know, you know, your own, you know, your own, but, um, to be open to learning about that. Um, I think that's wonderful. What, what was, what was your journey like? Like, how did you, how did you learn and how did you, um, get through that 
um, yeah. kind of ego, ego crushing in a good way, in like a really good way, but really painful way. How did you get to that work? Yeah, uh, there's probably some like daily growth in that and maybe some uh, peak experiences, I'll call it that, where okay. it, you come to that idea, right? So as I said, I grew up in a life of privilege, but I grew, it was mostly a white school. So, and if we think back to the 2000s, representation of Asians, specifically, specifically Indians in media was kind of reductive. Which is, which means that my friends thought the funniest thing to talk to me about was Apu from The Simpsons, because yeah. that's the only other Indian person they knew. So this feeling of being an other was always true in my life. Uh, and that feeling of not belonging, right? We talk about belonging a lot, but in that sense of like, oh, I'm different and other people are just calling me out for being different and not actually trying to build a relationship using our difference to create something new or something meaningful between us. And that that is just one example, right? It's like when people come to me, they don't do it as much anymore, thankfully. <laughs> I think we've evolved maybe a little bit, but why don't we call me like Raj Mahal? Because, you know, hey, like, isn't that cool? Like the Taj Mahal, like, what if we call you that? Oh, it's not cool. <laughs> exactly, right? Like, so there's these small experiences and some you can call it microaggressions, but they kind of build up just to this growing sense that you and this world have this dynamic. And then I, I have had a like spiritual journey, both with Christianity. I go to a Episcopal church, which is like, for people who don't know, it's like Catholicism, like diet Catholicism. So we're not as serious, but pretty independent. <laughs> <laughs> and then also with Buddhism, because I've gone on the seven day meditation retreats where we meditate just for 12 hours a day. And ultimately there's, there's this feeling of emptiness that you get through there of not being so identified with your own thoughts and emotions mm. but that's not the core of it it's like what do you do after you have that feeling and there's two concepts in buddhism <laughs> which i i think about so much which is mudita and karuna i don't know if i'm saying that right but it's just the idea of where do you get joy from because so much of america capitalism just the way our world is, joy comes from us doing things for ourselves. But the core idea of these two concepts is that you get joy from others. There's a sympathetic joy. Like, I'm happy when you're happy. Like, wow, that brings me so much joy. And then the second is compassion, which is relieving somebody of their suffering. Not in this, like, patriarchal way that medicine does, but, like, I care about you and I love you so much. And I want to work with you to relieve you of this suffering that you're experiencing. And those concepts really stuck with me. And I, if those are your goals, like, who cares if I'm not the best? <laughs> like, that's what I'm trying to do. And I want to do that better. And that makes it a lot more, let's say, palatable <laughs> to not be the best at everything, which we're always wanting to be. And, you know, I share people, I shared uh, my background, too, which was part of the story. That's great. So that kind of get, gets you out of perfection mode um, and and more about like what it's actually all about. I love that. I love that combination of of how spirituality can can help help you. And and I think what you mentioned also, that compassion part not being the like, I'll say white saviorism in your case, you you don't identify as white, but like that saviorism notion of like we in the West know better. Let's yeah, let's, um, you know 
do it our way and make things better for you. I think, I think that's I obviously such a slippery slope in healthcare too. I did medical mission trips when I was, um, oh, yeah. earlier, in, earlier in my days as a, an attending and, and never really got it, you know, until, until we were there. And I remember them being like, why do you think you, they said like, why are you here for a week? What do you think you're going to accomplish? Like, why are you bringing us these supplies that are almost expired? What, like, what do you, you know? And I remember thinking that's a really good point. <laughs> I don't have a good answer. Why am yeah. I here? Um, being challenged. And I think cultural competence was infused with that idea when, when it was created specifically, but it carried on some of that idea still. I don't know if you've had a full episode on cultural competence. Um, I don't think your audience has, but uh, do you want me to, can I just talk a little sure. bit about what I've learned? Please do. <laughs> Please do. There, yeah. The cultural competence idea, it, there's a lot of sources for it, but the creation of it was trying to understand this other person, like as a white doctor, because back in the day, there were mostly white male doctors, saw people that were different from them, and they really wanted to understand them because they were kind of foreign. It was almost like not to denigrate somebody's identity, but just talking about the story of like being in a zoo. Like mm. these these people, I want to understand better. Uh, so there's that dynamic to it. I like slowly was not the focus of it, but as it uh, evolved, it still had that feeling of one. It was always othering. Like there's a standard norm, which is me, as the person of privilege, and these other people that I'm trying to understand. Right. Right. Two. There was this like checkbox idea to it. Okay. These. This is what they wear. This is how they say hi. This is this is the list of values, five values that they believe in. Okay, I've learned it. Like almost like a textbook for heart disease. And yeah, that's, it's like that's a world a, religions class. It's like it's like these are the things that these people do. Yeah, yeah. And those two problematic things carried forward with the uh, with the idea of cultural competence, and really limited um, how you really build a caring relationship with somebody that's different from you at the core of it, right? So then they created, then they, sorry, I'm not an academic. I'm on a journey with, together with you all. I'll say that. So cultural humility was created where the idea was to reflect on your own identity because it's not so much about uh, the others, but also you, like what values you're bringing to the table and what your beliefs are and what your stories are. And that's also an important concept because with cultural competence, there was not that that part of it at all and yeah. i did think it helps uh us think about what we bring and for me in healthcare like we're very it can be very black and white we're very algorithmic and we like to have like a very specific structure of history physical assessment and recommendation assessment and plan and those are all just what we've learned and we need to understand that's like a specific kind of approaching life and a model that's not true in other healing systems, right? Like, you know, you're a tapping practitioner and you read all these other ways of healing and you know, like, this is this is not the only way to heal. And yeah. I think sometimes doctors forget, right? Where that's as, especially if that's all you're doing 24 seven. Totally. But even more important than that, this idea that was created by uh, the Maori people in New Zealand was the idea of cultural safety. So it's not just about you as the other. It's not just about me. It's about this relationship that we have together. And the goal is when I show up as a patient that's different from this provider, how can I feel 
physically, emotionally, and psychologically safe in this relationship. So you really try to understand that relationship deeper. And that involves you also understanding the history and the context of the community itself and systems to really work hard on creating that safety with uh, within that power dynamic. Because there's two different things, right? We think of culture as just patterns, like worldview, like a pattern of like beliefs and values for this community. And sometimes that can be reductive, but we all hold that. But it's not just about patterns, it's also about the power, like the power between these communities um, and how in healthcare, the doctors have a lot of power and the patient often doesn't, but also their community identity sometimes doesn't have a lot of power and they bring that into the clinic room or the clinic visit. I love that. That's so interesting. I mean, and no, no, no one has talked about this explicitly on the podcast before, and I didn't even really... I don't even know if I was aware because I, I do talk about cultural humility, mm -hmm. um, you know, like I know it as a concept and that it, like that we think about it, but I hadn't really thought about the, the um, con like comparison to cultural competence and the like othering versus the me and then now cultural safety. I think that's, that's so fascinating and, and so important um, because we don't take things into context, um, as physicians, um, how, how has it played out? So if you could like, give me a, a example of a patient encounter, how has it changed the way you interact with your patients? Um, someone who has a different identity from you, like, what does it look like real life? Yeah, that's what I love doing. Right. And my primary identity, as I said, is a doctor and I'm on this journey to be a better doctor clinician or no, but I can use, uh, whatever term we want to just somebody who's trying to be in a healing journey with this patient. And one thing that sticks out to me is this thing that a lot of doctors do in building rapport. We walk into the room and we try to connect with this patient that's different from us in some way. And let's say a patient's from Hawaii and not maybe not everybody's doing this, but a thing that a lot of doctors do is walk in and say, hey, like I was just in vacation in Hawaii. Where are you from? And they tried to connect in that way. And what came out so explicitly and directly in one of the episodes, uh, episode number two uh, or three with uh, Dr. Miley Tawali about Hawaii was that that is so hurtful because you're really not understanding the history of our community and land trauma. Because for you, you're coming into this thing like, oh, I want to build or build this connection with this person. And um, I know something about Hawaii. I was just there, this island, and maybe they're close by and we can connect in that way. But from a patient's perspective, they probably got kicked out of Hawaii because of tourists. Like they couldn't afford to live any live there anymore. And they had to leave. And they haven't gone back in so long because they can't afford to. And then here's this guy gallivanting into the room saying, hey, like, I just had a great time in your land. Like, tell me, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, tell me about it more, right? So we, like, one, we didn't, like, we're not having a big enough view about it. We didn't think about the patient nor the relationship with this, like, colonialism that has been happening and the tourism that's happened in Hawaii. And we we didn't understand the land trauma that people have experienced and even the idea of land trauma, right? So in that that relationship, in order to really build that relationship and 
build that idea of cultural safety, you have to understand the history of Hawaii a little bit, what we've done to Hawaii, and what people in Hawaii have experienced, and why are people from Hawaii here right now? And those are the questions I think as as clinicians, sometimes we don't think about because we are, we're so reductive in just what we what we do to care for people. I think that really not 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 that I was going and always saying that hi I just went to Hawaii, but how intentional you have to be to uh, to connect with the patient sometimes. <clears throat> I mean, for anyone else listening, I have so like all of the time. I mean, I still I think I still do this. Like this is really I'm learning a lot from you because. I think it's real easy to be like, oh yeah, I went there or I'm going here for my honeymoon or I'm going to this place. Like, that's awesome. Like I went to, you know, what do you recommend? But, and I think sometimes it's, it is a fun conversation if it's like someone says they're from somewhere and you're like, oh, cool. I want to go visit. What are some great places? But like, as I can totally see how this is problematic and I'm just having like, like jaw drop, you know, aha moments here. So yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, we're, we're not, taught in, in healthcare and in, in medical training to do this. We also don't have the time to do it. We're not, it's not prioritized. Even if we were taught, it's not prioritized. Maybe, you know, cause we get patient satisfaction scores and stuff, but it's like, that's the stuff we're not thinking about. So how do you make time for it? How do you incorporate it? I mean, obviously there is an intention. There has to be a, a desire to do better. Um, but how do you, take the time and, and know what you need to know. Cause I think there's this unconscious incompetence probably happening that we don't even know the harm we're causing. Even, yeah. even on, like on so many areas, but also in this area too. Yeah. 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 And I think one point that I'll add to what you were just saying is that when you were saying, yeah, sometimes it is possible to connect with people is that it is a worldview to our worldview that we often think of things as black and white <laughs> as that. Oh, like I can never tell people. Oh, so are you telling me that I can never tell right. anybody that I just went to Hawaii? And No, I'm not. I'm just saying like, this person may not be the right person and you really have to understand them yeah. <laughs> and they could be going to Hawaii all the time. And then, Hey, go ahead, talk about Hawaii, <laughs> but you don't know that. Right. And uh, just understanding that's a worldview that we often hold, especially in medicine of making everything's black and white, yes or no. Yeah. And trying to have that gray area more. And this whole conversation about culture is just all gray areas. There's not one definitive thing often. But yes, making time is always hard. Because I think I mentioned to you, I have two kids. So they're actually really young. So uh, Akash is now two and a half-ish. And then Ahan is 11 months. Oh. So they need a lot of things. Because yeah. they can't do anything for themselves. So and you may have this too, you know, you have so many projects, Jill, is there are some things that give you more energy, period, right? Like there's a list of tasks, but the things, there's certain things that you do actually like fill your cup more so you can do the other things more. And this project, let's, the, the, I created a podcast. It's not the core of it. The reason I created the podcast was I wanted to learn this for myself. And I was like, and I'm going to make this public because I don't I don't see a resource that's exactly like this for other people who want to join on join this journey with me. And I, I, I do so many things. It takes up a lot of time because I'm learning to podcast. You've been podcasting for a while, I think, but it's, it is a skill and a craft. So you have to, like, think about all these things. Um, and being creative, I feel like that that's been like knocked out of me in medicine sometimes. So, right? yeah, like, you know, like being like, okay, oh, like I could do anything I want here. <laughs> and so, like trying to learn it for myself, 
trying to understand what creativity means and then doing something that gives me more energy because again it links back to me feeling like oh like I'm actually growing as a doctor and being I'm actually feeling better about creating a caring relationship with this person in front of me because you had a second part of that question is like there's this like unconscious incompetence like things you don't know you don't know and I used an example that I I mean I didn't know really well it was just I said well I actually don't know this topic well so part of this project is actually amplifying the voices of the community and community leaders and I'm going to create a space that they can come and talk to and then I'm going to be this in-between person that translates whatever they say to this audience of clinicians that are like me so I'm going to learn from them and I'm going to create a platform where others can learn from me too uh, because there's so many parts to that I'm learning too, and we can digress or don't need to digress if you have any questions about that, but that's the essence of, uh, what I'm hoping to do. And I don't know if I answered your question. You totally, you totally did. So I guess, yeah. What, what have, like, what's, what are the, what are like some takeaways? I, and I always, when I, okay. So caveat being, when I ask this question, a lot of times people are like, that's your whiteness speaking. <laughs> like, we don't always have to like put it down to an easy list of what or whatever. So like, obviously this is an experiential thing. This is a process. This is a journey. And it's not like, like you're saying, it's like, learn these five things and you'll be culturally competent at cultural safety. You know, like that's defeating the purpose, but are there any like gems uh, that you wish you knew um, before you were doing this work or, 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 um, you know, ways to help encourage other people who are listening to this podcast and realizing that they have a lot of work to do in this specific area as well. Yeah, yeah. I think one is just reflecting on why we became a doctor. And it's often not just becoming a diagnostician or a problem solver. We wanted to heal people. And there's so much more to healing somebody than what we've been taught in medical school. That's just a fact. We know that. And now there's like jargon around it, social determinants of health and all of that stuff. But but even like in that one-on-one -on -one relationship that we often build through clinic visits over time, there's a feeling that we're, we're not adequate at healing from just what we've been taught in medical school. Because when people come to us, they want to be healed, not just given a medication or cured. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they really want the journey to also... Uh, acknowledge their suffering and help them through that suffering right so part of that is like I come to you I feel broken in some way and I want to feel whole again and making whole again making some helping somebody feel whole again is complicated and difficult yeah and we have to just be there with them through that journey sometimes we can't solve it right and then two people come to you they want to be, they want to feel like whole again, spiritually, mentally, and physically. And the biomedicine paradigm, again, we've probably heard this before, has reduced everybody to an organ system. Mm -hmm. But we're all complex people, and we want to be understood in that way. So the takeaway is just that as clinicians and doctors, what all can we do to understand this person in front of me so they don't have to always explain everything about them to you? 
right? So you can do some work about the understanding of their identity, the history of their community, why they immigrated here, and all of that. I love that. I love that. And it's it's funny because it goes back to my trip to Africa. God, it's so embarrassing. But like, we were like, we don't like, we did a, like a clinic, you know, people would come, they, they actually yeah. wouldn't let us practice any medicine while we were there. Cause they were kind of like, who do you think you are? Which I get, you know? Um, yeah. And I think it was an appropriate response and something that our group needed to hear and uh, had a huge impact on me moving forward. But we did do this one clinic and like people are coming in with like fever and they called their word for fever was malaria basically because malaria was so common. And I was like, who the hell do we think we are? We don't know how to treat malaria. Like we don't, we don't, we aren't, we haven't taken any time. Like we are not experts in this culture. We are not experts in this area. Yet we come here thinking that we have something to offer and really might probably we're just bringing our like drug resistant bacteria with us. But yeah. but yeah, like it's it's this like what when how much time did we take to understand their culture before we went there or you know to learn any of that? So I think I think it it shows up in so many ways. And I think that that what you said really um highlights that. Um so what what how so other than listening to your podcast, which we will link of course below. Um, which has, and, and I feel like, so I don't know your experience of Seattle, but my experience of Seattle, I came from Atlanta uh, and I'm from Atlanta and I did med school in Atlanta and Atlanta is becoming much more diverse, but before the diversity, the quote unquote diversity was more like black, black folks and white folks like that. There wasn't as much in the city that I would see. Now it's a lot different. I got to Seattle and I saw like zero black people. And it was very weird for me. And, um, and I, I, the, the, the black patients that I interacted with were immigrants from Somalia and Ethiopia. And I learned a lot about their culture, but there's like a whole other, so it's easy to say, oh, Seattle's not diverse because there's not like as many black people there, but there was like a ton of other different identities, you know, different Asian being on the West coast, different Asian, um, identities there. So how do you, um, how do you, your, your, your podcast, I think connects with a lot of those different identities. How do you, um, how do you find people for your podcast and how do you? Yeah. Them? Yeah. Good question. Um, cause there, one part of this is just, yes, Seattle's really white. <laughs> Let's just say that, right. <laughs> it's really white. <laughs> But there are people that are from other communities here, which is why I feel like it's even more important because there's a concept of erasure that comes out in the Pacific Islander uh, community episode uh, with Joseph Seiya, where he talks about Pacific Islanders being less than 1% of the community. So people often think they're not important enough mm. to target or think about. And that's what erasure is, because you show up and nobody's ever thought about you. There's no funding. Like, there's just less than 1%, right? So when you have, yes, like ideally, every community would have their own community health center that's targeted just for them with the people that look like just them. You know, there's this vision of that. And I want to work towards that. But right now, they get insurance from an employer. And they go to a clinic that's close by or whichever they can, if you're an HMO like ours. 
And then they show up to a doctor that maybe has a few Ethiopian patients, few Somali. So not enough to do it all the time to know it really well. Yeah. And those are the people I want to know more because that's when patients really feel, it's not using this word uh, like lightly, like uh, assaulted with their identity because they show up and they like person knows nothing about them or their background. And they just give them some standard advice. They're like, wow, like this is what I'm paying insurance for. And you hear that from the community a lot, right? So that that audience like is feels like even more important to me and dear to my heart here. So I, I base this idea of like understanding communities on location-based. Although, you know, if you're a Com Cambodian coming from Cambodia, that community has similar history coming to the America and living here. There's probably nuances in the, uh, in the community itself. But the second part of your question was like, how do I find these folks? Mm -hmm. And I just go out and do some community organizing. That's why I, I really try to like get into that role because I want to be proud of it and really feel like I'm connecting to people in the community for a specific uh, purpose. So we think about what resources we, we have, what power we need to build to make the change we want. Right. And I reach out to the community and try to see who has the time and capacity and wants to have a, a platform in this specific way to communicate to clinicians, because it doesn't exist in that way. That's why I've loved podcasting. I mean, yeah. I'm an avid podcaster because I have two kids and that's the only thing I can do. <laughs> so it's <laughs> do my dishes and listen to podcasts for a break. <laughs> so uh, and I thought that that was a good uh, way for me to use what I uh, what I'm used to listening to and then build that skill and provide that skill for the community and try to bridge that gap with the clinicians. Again, I told you at the beginning, it's just like, what can I offer? And this is what I felt like I could offer. And it's probably something different for everybody, depending on your interest and passions. Yeah. Something you were saying before reminded me of when I saw one of your episodes, like the, the cover is talking about like, is rice really that bad for you or something? I think it was, I think it wasn't, an Indian guess, I can't yeah. remember. Yeah. But I just think about, you know, white or Western trained doctors coming in and being like, your cultural norm is not healthy. Stop doing it, you know? And and yeah. is it actually not healthy? And and as you mentioned, I mean, so much of what I, I grapple with is where does Western medicine miss out? Where, where, where are the gaps? how big are the gaps? And then like the other modalities, how much do they fill the gaps? Are the gaps fillable? And who has access to those modalities? That's like a huge, you know, like it's easy to be like, everyone just meditate, but it doesn't work for everybody. Or everyone just do this and it doesn't work for everybody and it's expensive and whatever else. So, um, but I, maybe if you could just speak a little bit to some of the, some of the ways you've seen, I don't know if this is a, even a, a real question, but like, when, as you learn about someone else's culture, recognizing that like this blanket statement of, oh, eat less rice, like how wrong that is and how like, on so many different levels, like culturally, all, all the different ways you mentioned, emotionally, culturally, maybe scientifically, you know, I don't know enough about yeah. rice and, and stuff like that. So can you comment about that? Yeah. I, is the question, do I approach patients differently? And yes, that's a yes, right? Like, we could just use the rice example. Because of that episode, I think Dr. Waring talks about how she went to all these reputable sites and couldn't figure out what the actual glycemic index or how the sugar is processed in your blood with rice. 
but rice is a staple food of my culture that I've eaten for so long. And rice is not just something that gives me nutrition. It's like connects me to my family and my uh, tradition. It's how we celebrate. There's like special kinds of rices we make. Rice we make like we just had pongal, which is South India. We celebrate the first harvest, and there's this like um, rice dish with jaggery, and then rice dish with uh, that's a little spicier that we make, and that's how we celebrate the entire holiday. Uh, and it's been carried on from the farming days, but it's such a moment of like joy and like connecting with family. And we really diminish people's experiences that way because we think like everybody's making a decision like just around their health, because health is the most important priority that people have. And that I think is like an American thing and like the wellness industry, how like everybody's like drinking green smoothies and we're like all earning a lot of money just to live healthily <laughs> when people have different values. Right. Um, and I think the food connects well to that. So when I talk about food now, like you're thinking about like, does it, do I approach it differently? I first just kind of get a sense of like what they're eating. And I don't focus on specifically the specific component of rice, but like what's changed from their traditional diet? Let's say like, yeah, like I eat pongol, which I said is like my specialty dish for this special holiday once in a while. Uh, but now like it comes in these like boxed, like pre-made things and I have no time to cook. And that's what I'm eating every day. And I put a lot of like ghee in it. And I'm like, oh, like that's interesting. It used to be a celebrating thing. Now you're doing every day. Like, is there something we can talk about there uh, to link you both, like back to either what you were traditionally doing or being something creative where we mix both of the American culture and your culture so you feel better during the day or have a more diverse set of foods that you're eating, right? And that's such a different question and approach rather than saying, wow, you're eating a rice. Can you stop doing that? Yeah, gosh, that's so true. And I think you and I had in our email correspondence talked a little bit about like fat shaming and and oh yeah, yeah. A little bit of like um <clears throat> this need to in, impose the need to be healthy and not just healthy, but our version of healthy and whoever our is and whatever that version is on people, like policing people's bodies, um, and how that comes out in healthcare as well. Um in a lot of different aspects yeah. of our society as well. But like, I have this mandate to make sure you are being as healthy as possible. And if you're not, we have to fix all those things. And healthy is my version of healthy, <laughs> you know, like, like, yeah, it has to look this certain way and and this certain body type. Um, do you, What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. And we can link it to the cultural safety component of it. And let's try to talk about that. Uh, let's talk about the Pacific Islander community because we mentioned that, I don't think we've talked in depth about that. But there's uh, Joseph, He, I think he shared in that episode, because he actually uh, saw me later in a visit. But he was really honest with me. He He's done this healthcare work in the community for decades. And he's passionate about connecting Pacific Islander community to good healthcare. And he mm -hmm. said, you know what, I haven't gone to the doctor in four years. Because last time I came in, all they saw was a fat body. Like I was trying to tell them things and that's all they could ever focus on. And then I decided never to come back. And that happens to a lot of people because that, that interaction sucks, right? Like you're trying to communicate something's bothering you and all they ever tell you to do is lose weight. But with the Pacific Islander community, 
honesty, there's so much more to this because actually Pacific Islander community, and I'm going to use the word obesity here and not a fat shaming way, that has a high um, percentage of people that are obese because of historically what colonialism has done because all of their traditional food has been replaced by like spam because of military occupation. Mm -hmm. And we dump a lot of food in there, like New Zealand dumps like turkey tail there because it's just this whole complex uh, world market often abuses these relationships to benefit their own. Mm -hmm. So their entire ecosystem of food and nutrition has changed. And hey, like that could be contributing to why body sizes look different. Not that they're inherently bad, but their diet has changed and what's available to them has changed. So you going to their and all you talk about is like losing weight and blaming them for like what they've done to their body. Hey, is probably not like the greatest way to approach that interaction right right right. slash causing extraordinary <laughs> yeah. amounts of trauma yeah and and like years i mean that's that says a lot and we don't and i, I and i'm using i mean i'm i'm trying to be the i'm still doing a problem a lot of problematic things here like we didn't talk about even like acknowledging different diverse body sizes but mm-hmm. for people who haven't thought about this that's like the first aha right. moment right it's like hey like maybe it's not all your fault right <laughs> and there's so many layers to this again i want to acknowledge that people that are listening uh have diverse body sizes and none of it's inherently bad yeah yeah and that's but we're we're taught that it is yeah. We're we're taught that skinny is healthy and fat is not. And I don't know if you know the podcast maintenance phase. I'm obsessed with it. I listen to it. It's incredible, but it's I've learned it's totally re re revamped the entire way that I see health and and weight and size and and all of it. Um but yeah, like what wh- what are the worst outcomes? Like the, the 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 adverse health outcomes that we're talking about. Could it be because we shame them for their body size every time they come into the, you know, and, and ignore and don't don't listen to their complaints and instead talk about what our needs are for their body instead of what they come in for? It's just there's so much to unpack there. Um, and um, yeah, exactly. So yeah. Not, yes, so, so many levels. You were about to say something. <laughs> No, 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 no. I was just agreeing with you. Enthusiastically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I I when I have these conversations with healthcare professionals who are still practicing and haven't like done this work to to start deprogramming the way we're taught to to see fatness, there's so much resistance because it's been so ingrained in us without any question without any, anything. It's just like, this is truth. This is fact. This is like you were saying, it's also black and white. Um, so, okay. I feel like we could keep talking for hours. Um, we are approaching the end of our time. How can people find you? We will link your podcast, but like, where, where can people find you and, and, uh, and learn more about what you're putting out into the world? Yeah. The easiest is probably just go to healthcareforhumans.org and you can contact me through that website as well. Awesome. Um, do you have any, like any other books you recommend or anything like that for people to read? I'm, I'm really boring <laughs> that I rec- I like love reading textbooks <laughs> so uh, <laughs> because I'm trying to unpack this thing and, uh, like understand what we know about it so far and what actually like people in the community have said about it. Um, so nothing specific at this moment. 
Okay, perfect. I know, there's a lot. I'm also busy podcasting, so I'm like so into like the art of podcasting. So, oh, uh, right, right, right. Yeah, I, like, I feel like I could learn about that, like the nuances and and some of the tech stuff for sure. Um, well, thank you so much, Raj, for joining me today and um, for sh sharing a, a perspective that we have not we have not explored, and um, that's what I love about this work. Um, I'm just looking through my like pages and pages of notes that I've been taking. Um, always learning something new and, and, and kind of being open to being wrong, even when everything in our world is teaching us that we're not supposed to be wrong and that it's not okay to be wrong. So thank you for modeling that. And thank you for teaching me and, uh, my audience lots today. Um, and I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for doing the work you do. And, uh, thank you for having me. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.